0: You girls,
1: Love your Hey everybody, this is Charlie from Athrax and you are listening to Today's Boondoggle. This is
0: Mark Metcalf and you are listening to Today's Boondoggle with Bailey on Domain Cleveland Radio. You are listening to Today's Boondoggle with Bailey on Domain Cleveland Radio. Yes, Kato Kalen listens to this all the time. Welcome to Today's Boondoggle. Now it's a host. I am Monty Heath, so one Heath, and you are listening to Today's Boondoggle. Hey, what's up? It's John from Skillet, and you are listening to Today's Boondoggle on Domain Cleveland Radio. Fasten your seatbelts! Sonic Temple Art and Music Festival returns to Historic Cruise Stadium. Slipknot. Ah. Disturbed. Fanterra. The Original Misfits. Evanescence. Slim Biscuit. Judas Priest. Stain. Breaking Benjamin. A Day to Remember. Falling in Reverse. Sleep Token. Rise Again. 311. Cedar. Mudfang. Fan. many more. May 16th through the 19th. Columbus, Ohio. Tickets on sale now at sonictemplefestival.com what's going on everybody it's bill bailey with today's boondoggle and a real quick housekeeping note if you're watching us on youtube or odyssey or BitChute or rumble please hit that follow and subscribe button and if you're listening to us on spotify apple google uh whatever podcast platform you're utilizing please hit that follow and subscribe button uh so we can continue to bring you conversations like the one i'm about to bring you today we are uh we're go- we're howling mad tonight, man, because I'm getting to talk with Larry the Wolf from the band Manimals. What's going hey. on, Larry? Hey,
1: Bill, it's great to be with you here tonight at the Boondoggle. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah, man, I've been looking forward to it. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I've I've known of the legend Larry the Wolf, and you know. I, I've admired from afar, but uh, it was cool to like meet you in the flesh at uh, at the Danzig show, and 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 talk with you. We have a lot of mutual friends in the music scene, and and I just you know I had to have you on, man. I I have friends in the music scene. That's news to me. I had no idea. <laughs> Not many. Man, got, it, it, there's a few that like you, and and you know what uh, the ones well the ones that do like you they're uh, they're uh, Word carries some weight with me, so uh, you know you got the right ones. that like you. That's all that matters.
1: That's that's very kind of you, Bill. I appreciate. It. Yeah, it was great to uh, meet you in person at uh, uh, Danzig. I don't uh, I don't get out much because I don't like most stuff and I don't like most people. So uh, I uh, I don't venture out too often. But when I do, it's for special occasions. And that, of course, was my uh, my dear friend Sean Vanek plays in Midnight and Jamie at Midnight and the Iron Possessor, all the guys at Midnight are pals of mine. And they oh, asked me yeah, to please yeah. come down for that show. And it was uh, actually, it was almost, it was within one day of being exactly 39 years to the day of when uh, Sam Hain played Manimal Sam Hain at the old pop shop under the original Agora back in 1984. And uh, Steve Zing was in the band at that time, playing drums as well. So it was a chance. He's plays bass in Danzig now. So it was a chance for me to uh, connect with him after 39 years.
0: Wow, that's awesome! Awesome to hear.
1: So you and some other buddies down there, but I don't come out too often. It was great to meet you.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, 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 same here. But uh, you know, usually when I have people on for the first time, I like to go and get a little background. So. Do you remember originally, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh,
1: huh. Let me think about this. Earliest, well, I was I was uh, one of the uh, horror kids, you know, with the uh, monster craze of the 60s and early 70s, so I was addicted to Aurora monster models and famous monsters of Filmland magazine and watching uh, Chilla Theater. Uh, back east, I'm originally from New York uh, when I was a little kid, and then moving out to Ohio, of course, the Ghoul and the the Hoolahan, and Big Chuck and all that were here on Friday and Saturday nights, but I was one of those monster kids, so, of course, uh, reading Famous Monsters Magazine, uh, you know, my earliest heroes were Joe Namath, who I saw play at uh, Shea Stadium in 1970, um, uh, Lon Chaney Sr., and Elvis Presley.
0: Nice. <clears throat> and then um, when was it that, like, uh, you know, like music caught your ear and who were some of your earliest influences?
1: Well, you know, music I fell into. A lot of things, uh, Bill, I, I, uh, they find me more than I find them. So music was kind of that way. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll get into that. But the earliest uh, I remember, my parents had a terrible taste in music. But my grandparents lived with me. Uh, we lived with us when we moved from the city. I'm from the Bronx. And we moved out to New Jersey. And my uh, my mother's uh, mom and dad, my Italian grandparents, moved out with us. And my grandpa had great taste in music. So he played Mario Lanza and stuff like that. But he had a, a real affection for Patsy Cline. And then my uncle uh, up, lived up the street. He was more like my older brother. And he worked for GMAC. He would uh, repo cars. Tough job in the city doing that in Harlem and the Bronx. And... Uh, He um, he Then he moved his way up into finance, but he always had the best cars. He had an eight track, and he would play Elvis. So i drive around with him, and we'd listen to Elvis. Um, The earliest band I ever saw that had a big impact on me, that I I, I, I was really, uh, for whatever reason, they caught my fancy, was I was watching TV when I was little. And back east, there was a show called Out of Sight. So you're talking the late 60s, and it would have had, I was probably six, seven years old, and they would play, like, psychedelic uh, scenes, like just weird moving colors, psychedelic stuff mixed over go-go girls dancing to whatever current music was on. And then they would have a band on there once in a while, and I watched this one band, and, of course, I'm watching for all the girls all wearing mini skirts and go-go boots. They all look like Joey Heatherton. It was Dynamite or Ann-Margaret. Yeah. And... uh they had a band on they're all wearing like revolutionary uh, soldier outfits. They're doing synchronized moves, swinging the, the the necks of the guitar and bass up and down. Then there's the two guys are standing on top of the amps and they're playing garage rock. It was Paul Revere and the, and the Raiders. Because in there, every, everybody else looked like, you know, uh, either they looked like hippies or they looked like, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I love Creedence Clearwater Revival, but I don't want to I don't want to look like them. <laughs> uh, you know, so so when I saw Paul Revere in the race, they were the first ones I, I, that hit me that I thought, wow, that's, a, that's that's wild. They have a uniform look. They look like a gang. And then, of course, when I was a little kid, uh, uh, this is Tom Jones hit on Thursday nights. And Tom Jones was dynamite. But I remember my uncle pulling me aside and saying, Tom Jones is great, but you know he's not the king. And uh, And that's when I started getting introduced to Elvis Presley. So those were really my and then later on I became one of the cross kid of the 70s, typical teenager of the 70s, uh, where I you had either one faction that liked Led Zeppelin and Rush and all that stuff, and you had the other faction that liked KISS and maybe Mot the Hoople and stuff like that. So I was I was one of those kids that uh was a big uh Kiss Army kid back in the 70s.
0: Nice, yeah. That was my gateway gateway drug as well in the music uh I remember seeing Kiss Alive for the first time as a kid and just like just the, the artistry and makeup and the, the blood and, you know, all that pulled me in. Big horror fan growing up as well, like you. And then, um, you know, you, you brought up a memory with bringing up Patsy Cline. I remember my mother, big Cat, Patsy Cline fan, and she would sing, you know, crazy and, yep. you know, still would at, at karaoke night uh, to this day, you know, oh, if she could. and. Uh, Big Elvis fan as well, so my 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 family uh, brought in some some decent music, and I had older brothers that you know were on the Led Zeppelin side and everything like yeah. that. But
1: oh yeah, all the older guys like Led Zeppelin and the Who you know, and stuff like that. It, it was a more sophisticated uh, musical palette than I had as, as that age. Yeah, you know, I was more like Alice. I, I see Alice Cooper and the Billion Dollar Babies. It had to have a visual attached to it, yeah. unless it was just pure Patsy Cline. Like Elvis, is pure talent. When you hear people sing, most people sing like shit. Let's be honest. Can, most people can't. And bands, most people are... are uh, I always go with the with the attitude of this 85% of any music, whatever the genre might be, is absolute crap. It's just garbage. Somehow it gets over with people. Yeah. About 10% is good. And about 5% is special. And the truly gifted artists, somebody like an Elvis Presley or Patsy Cline, who just has such perfect, beautiful, unique voice, they flip those and 85% of what they do is just special. You know, they all did. I mean, Elvis did his movie songs and some of them are garbage, but poor guy had to do some of that crap that the colonel got him locked into. Uh, And Patsy Cline, some of her early songs are, are just to make money. Anybody who's down, in I know everybody's going, every Ohioan seems to be down in Nashville these days, or at Vegas, as they call it, uh, and when they go down to the Johnny Cash Museum, they ought to make a stop upstairs to the uh, Patsy Cline Museum.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, like, as you uh, started getting in, you know, to KISS and, and the music scene in your teens and stuff, when was it that uh, you knew you, uh, it fell into you that you were going to be performing?
1: I never did. I, I just didn't. Uh, I thought I'd be, you know, I played sports growing up. I didn't do a, I wasn't a a, a band kid, I, you know, I just, that wasn't my thing. Nothing wrong with it, nothing against it. Uh, you know, I played sports. I was not a, I was not any aspirations of, of doing that. Um, again, I thought if I did anything performance wise, would be, uh, I, I wanted to grow up and be like Lon Chaney. I wanted to do my own makeup and, uh, and uh, I, I'm not prosthetics because that was at that time, you know people don't really know what that was, but you'd see these old famous monsters magazines where they'd show Lon Chaney with his famous uh, makeup kit and he and he and he do these just unbelievable makeup jobs. And I thought that was that'd be something if it my pipe dreams that would have been fun to do. So, and I love pro wrestling, you know, so I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, Bill. I, I was just you know trying to struggle through life. You gotta remember, I moved here, uh, my dad got transferred here, I was supposed to be for one year. Back in 1970 uh that didn't uh that ended up being a little bit longer so i was a displaced uh east coast kid or from uh you know my my best years were in uh bergen county of uh new jersey we moved from the bronx over to new jersey right when i started school i loved it back there so i was an unwilling hostage coming out to ohio ohio's been a great place to live but um and I, I will tell you, in 1970, I, I moved here. I, I was the diversity in uh, Rocky River, Ohio. Uh, I, you know, I was a kid with an accent. Nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. Back East, I was used to having, like, I had my Italian grandparents living with me. I didn't know a kid in my in my grade that didn't have a, 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 a grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle living with them. And most of them were bilingual households. Most of them were first generation. So it was a very different environment for me to come here to Ohio. So, I, you know, I, I was just struggling along trying to do stuff with sports and things like uh, mon- monster movies and, and wrestling and football. Those were all consistent from where I had been. You know, that stays the same. You know, the territories of pro wrestling, of course, change. But, you know, yeah. football and watching the same. I'd watched, you know, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman back east on Chilla Theater. I come out here. and Well, maybe I'm watching Gamera you know, the flying turtle on, on the ghoul or something not quite as good as the universal package, but you get what I mean. You know, you would watch yeah. the, basically the same movies Friday, Saturday night. And back then it was cool, of course, because every market had their own, uh, horror hosts.
0: It, you know, and then, uh, like, so you, you were more into sports, like what were kind of some of your, uh, what, 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 uh, sports were you mostly into?
1: I loved football, but, uh, and then track and field. Okay. Um, you know i i i saw uh i remember seeing uh brian oldfield on the uh the superstars the show that used to be on abc back in the 70s where they have like uh, an example of one of the best of each sport compete against one another i remember that um you might be a little bit younger than me but uh, i suspect you are but um in the 70s they had a show called the superstars so they would have they had like uh uh, Ronaldo Nehemiah from the, uh, I think he played on the uh, 49ers, and he's running against um, Cal, uh, what the hell was his name, Cal Ripken Jr. or something from baseball. Then they had Kyle Rote from soccer. Then they had a boxer on. So they had different guys on there. And I remember seeing that uh, Lou Ferrigno was on. But I remember seeing uh, Brian Oldfield. And he was—he uh, was doing things that nobody else could do. He was the biggest, fastest, strongest guy. He was the first guy to hit seventy-five feet with a shot put. He was a complete rebel. He'd walk up to the shot circle, smoking a cigarette, throw a cigarette down, throw seventy-plus feet, blow everybody away, and walk off. I mean, he was just a just a complete rebel. And uh, I thought he was pretty cool. So that influenced me a lot.
0: And then you mentioned uh, pro wrestling and the and the territories and stuff. I'm I'm I too am a big pro wrestling fan. That's I'm. Still, uh, it's a guilty pleasure True. of mine, you know. But uh, I think it was like you know, I'd go out to like Richfield Coliseum back in the day, you know, and see Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy, and you know, around WrestleMania two is when I came in. What? Who were some of the wrestlers at the time that uh, drew you in that you were a big uh, fan of?
1: Well, I can tell you because I was a again kid back east. I first saw the WWF which was at that time still Bruno San Martino. Um, so uh, that was what I saw as a, as a young child. And then when I moved out here, it was, of course, Channel 43 and Channel 61. But Channel 43, I think had to get championship wrestling. And uh, I, I absolutely bugged the shit out of my father to take me down to the old Cleveland Arena. So uh, I got to see, you know, the original Sheik, against Bobo Brazil and Pampero Furpo and uh, uh, Abdullah Butcher and uh, Dominic DiNucci and Johnny Powers and those and the fabulous Kangaroos and the uh, Love Brothers, Reginald and Hartford and the Mongols. But I, I will tell you, one of the things that a lot of Cleveland people don't realize is a uh, precursor to uh, WrestleMania was in 1972, there was an event at the old Cleveland Stadium called the Super Bowl of Wrestling. This was, I believe, August of 72. It was headlined by uh, Johnny Powers versus the great Johnny Valentine. And it was co-headlined by Abdul the Butcher versus the big cat Ernie Ladd, who was a great AFL football player for the Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, they had three rings set up on the infield. I went to that show. Uh, That was, uh, again, I think it was August of 72. Wow. It wasn't very well attended. There were very few people. I think it was a colossal flop, but uh, it was a precursor to these big, you know, big arena or big stadium uh events that they tried to pull off and uh uh you know again that was the pittsburgh detroit cleveland market i think <laughs> was what that territory was
0: yeah and you know it's like it's more noticeable when they hold it in the big the big venues and no people people don't show up oh, yeah. you know oh yeah it's that old Cleveland important. stadium
1: yeah the old cleveland stadium had the worst sight lines anyway it had the big pillars between everything oh uh, and- yeah and the rings were a mile away from you, but I can, in my mind's eye, I can still see Abdul Butcher and uh, Ernie Ladd brawling all over the – everybody, everywhere but the three rings. They went into the stands. They went between the ring, all over the field, anywhere but the rings. And, and that I can still have a, a little bit of a vision from or a memory of. And the Johnny Powers uh, – Johnny Valentine was, was one of the – you know, it's funny. I, I, most people – I look at pro wrestling as two distinct eras, okay? There's pre and post, I would say, 1980, 81, when cable TV starts to become uh, ex- massive expansion across the country. You know, I knew people who had, I had new cousins back east who had cable in the 70s. Um, I remember being pissed. We didn't get cable here, and in 1977, there was a, a HBO special of Kiss at Budokan, the first time they played Japan, right after the rock and roll Oto problem. And uh, they might have had it, but it wasn't widespread like it is now. Yeah. So you didn't get Atlanta Superstation, and you didn't get the other channels where you'd see the NWA at that whatever. Um, that so, and you didn't get WOR to see the WWF stuff. So um, with cable, to me, that's the modern era. And there's a lot of people who were holdovers, like Ric Flair. I've seen Ric Flair in person going back to the NWA, day, uh, NWA days from the 80s. So I am live many times. He was always the less talented guy in the ring no matter who he wrestled. And he wrestled the same exact crap match every single time. <laughs> now, it was good psychology in the matches, but yeah. but ultimately but what he did was he wrestled the style. I had seen guys like Johnny Valentine do 10 times better 10 years earlier than when everybody saw this. And this was new to them in the 80s. Okay, they were all wrestling. Harley Race wrestled that way. The Briscoe Brothers, the Funks. But Johnny Valentine was one of the toughest guys. And, and Ernie Ladd wrestled a style like that. I mean, so what, was, what, what is old is new to a new audience. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to me, the big bang of that whole 80s era that you mentioned, when, when, when cable now expands and everybody's familiar with WWF and McMahon starts buying, and you could pick up the AWA, on espn on friday night showing you the uh the uh what's his name uh the guy that the guy and his son that ran uh, awa up and ganya, G- ganya. Ganyas, yes yes yeah, so yeah you got Vern ganya and his son on there showing that and they had like the early uh they had nick bockwinkle so you could see that stuff on friday nights on espn then there were certain stations show the florida station where lex luger was the florida state champion we get too much yeah te- well you did get texas championship wrestling with the uh, Von Eriks and the dingo warrior became the ultimate warrior and all that. Rick, so, but to That's me, what the I'm great, drinking out of right now. My ultimate right. warrior. Uh. <laughs> uh, the, to me, the big bang of all that st- of athleticism, the best athlete, the guy who blew me away. Cause I fell in and out of love with, with it over the years. is Randy Savage. Mm. He's, he is. People can argue who the, who yeah. the fucking go to this, the go to that. Who the fuck is the goat? Who, how do you know? I will say what he is to me is the MVP of the modern era, because everybody had their best programs. If you worked a program with him, you are guaranteed to have a probably a legendary match, a great program with a fabulous storyline, and you're going to get terrific interviews and mics. You know him going crazy or what it. Didn't matter. It could be the f- the. It's funny because there's a big thing with wrestling fans about why uh, Randy or uh, Ric Flair didn't wrestle. We're getting on this pro wrestling thing. Why Ric <laughs> Flair didn't, the missed opportunity of WrestleMania 8, why Hogan and Flair didn't headline it. I went to one of those uh, Hogan-Flair test house show matches in, I think it was December of 91 uh, in uh, at Richfield. It was a shit match. It was garbage because you had two guys who have three mo- moves each waiting for the other to do something so that one can sell. Yeah. Flair's not going to pick up Hogan savage could do that savage was big enough and athletic enough to have great matches with bigger men but still fast enough and athletic enough to have fast matches which with average or smaller size men flair couldn't do that he's not going to pick up and slam the ultimate war he's not he i mean i saw savage have a match with andre on his last legs and he still figured out a way to make the the match interesting oh but yeah but I saw one of those shows. and the best the best favor they ever did for Ric Flair was put him in that macho Flair uh, angle with uh, with Savage. And I went to WrestleMania 8 uh, in Indianapolis. It was a great match. They did him the favor of his life because if they had, had <laughs> Hogan Flair as a headline, it would have been the worst. It would have been exposed, both of them, as being this would have been a garbage match.
0: Oh, yeah. I yeah. saw one.
1: It was terrible.
0: The, uh and, 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 you know, everybody talks at WrestleMania 3, oh, Hulk Hogan slamming Andre the Giant and stuff. Man, I talk about Randy Savage and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat Intercontinental match. Well, of course. That was the yes. one, you know? Yes.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is about that, Bill, is when Savage was still alive, I've ever seen things. And Ricky Steamboat's a great wrestler. He overacts a little bit. He's a little overdramatic. But um, he would always credit Savage as being the one that scripted it out. After Savage passed away, it became, we scripted it out. Now, Savage, it's pretty certain from old interviews, it was Savage. That's Savage. He just put everybody, he made everybody look great. He made the Ultimate Warrior look great in a couple matches. He made Hogan look great. I I saw him in 85 and 86 uh, at Richfield against Hogan, and the crowd was already divided. He was getting like an anti-hero thing the way Steve Austin did years later.
0: Yeah, yeah he was he was definitely incredible talent um but yeah i you know i gotta i gotta bring it you know I could talk pro wrestling all day because yeah like, we'll I, move on from that I'm still a fan, but i gotta bring it back to uh you know what I originally wanted to bring you on then how did um uh, manimals come to be then if if music kind of wasn't something you were like into or pursuing how did uh how did it come together for you?
1: Well, you know, I was like a lot of kids. I, I went and bought a bass. I got to use bass. I used Gibson EB3 uh, bass, and I, I learned, I taught myself how to play by picking up and dropping the needle on Kiss Alive a couple hundred times. And um, I didn't think I was going to do anything with it. And uh, it was just just a play. And uh, when I was in, uh, I went to school at the University of Toledo. Uh, that's another story a buddy of mine uh was way into going to the hardcore shows because detroit was a big hardcore scene it was not a big scene here in cleveland at that time um and toledo's kind of a, a suburb of detroit really i mean they follow the lions and everything else so uh i started going to some hardcore shows with him i said "Shit, these guys you these kids and they're they're printing their own flyers they're making their own records they're doing their own shows and uh most of them couldn't play for shit, but they had a ton of energy, and I love that do-it-yourself attitude. It's kind of cool. And uh, at the same time that what was happening, I could draw a little bit, Bill. I wasn't, I had no formal training, but I could draw a little bit. I like to, I like to draw because I love comic books. You know, there's the other component of that whole thing, I grew up on Marvel comic books. That was another mm-hmm. thing that was consistent from moving here. I could buy issue a Spider-Man or Captain America back East. I could buy, I could continue it right back in Ohio when I moved here. So that was very consistent for me. And um, I draw a little bit, you know, and uh, try to draw like Jack Kirby or John Romita or John Basima. And uh, at the same time, there was this big emergence of uh, independent metal labels and, and punk rock and everything. in around 79, 80, 81, uh, there was a, uh, this this new dawning of these independent comic book labels and comics were starting to get sold in uh, comic specialty stores, not just on the newsstand. And everybody was a comic collector would wanted to go to one of these specialty stores because you know, at the newsstand at the candy store, the things are all bent up and kids are rifling through them, and they're they're all messed up comics. So you get them, to, you go to the to the comic store, and there's going to be some some nerdy guy there who knows his shit. He's going to tell you look for this one or that one, and there's these all these new independent um publishing companies coming out one of them was uh uh with the pacific comics where uh the rocketeer came out of with dave stevens who was uh, they did a movie in, in the 90s with the rocketeer that was one of the bigger independent things that came out and that's where like teenage Min- mutant ninja turtles came out and a lot of these others that weren't marvel or dc so I drew up some pages, and, and I heard there was a comic uh, company opening up uh, north of Chicago by the name of First Comics, was the name of the publisher. And I drew up some pages. They weren't great, but, yeah, I love Dirty Harry movies and Clint Eastwood and stuff, uh, you know, the, all the anti-hero, vigilante stuff of the 70s. So uh, I uh, drew up a character that was uh, half man, half beast. It was based on, again, back to horror movies, it was based on... Uh, one of my favorites, which is Island of Lost Souls from 1932, which is an adaptation of H.G. Wells Island, Dr. Moreau. And uh, I drew up this character, and I did a, a set of three or four pages, and I inked some. And it was kind of a dirty Harry meets Wolverine-looking character. I took him out to the guy, and he was, he was very kind to me. He was nice. He, he looked at him, and, and I knew and I, tw- I think I'm 19 or 20 at the time. And he said you know your anatomy is very good your composition the way you see things he says very good it's like cinematic look like storyboarding but he said your your technical skills with inking and your backgrounds are very rough you got to go back and work on that so it was fair he gave me some positive feedback didn't tell me i totally sucked but he said you got to go work on this if it's something you want to do and i probably was not going to do the work but you know i wanted to try I came back, and I was looking at it. And now this is about the time where KISS starts to, the wheels are falling off the wagon for me with KISS. Um, I don't know when you first saw them. First time I saw them was in 76. I was 14 years old. And I begged, bullied, pleaded, everything else with an older guy, a buddy of mine around the corner, to please drive us to see KISS because I saw the ad for uh, the Spirit of 76 Destroyer tour. Oh, I was yeah. dying to go to that. I was also dying to go to see Elvis, who played the Coliseum a month after that. That was September '76. He played his last show in Northeast Ohio, October of '76. I couldn't talk the guy into taking me to that, or anybody to take me to that, unfortunately. But we went to the Kiss show, you know. So they were great. I mean, I was, they were they were spectacular. I can't even tell you how phenomenal they were. I saw him again in the Blizzard of '78 show, but by I saw him four times in '79, and the wheels were starting to fall off. The, the the songs weren't heavy anymore. When I first saw them when i was 14 i was like 10 years younger than everybody in the audience it was it was a rock it was all older guys and and their girls it was an older crowd by the time 79 rolls around i'm i'm i can drive now uh i went up to pontiac to see him at the silver dome with cheap trick i saw him both nights in cleveland i saw him in, in toledo on the last night of dynasty which was the last of the original four until 96. All of a sudden, it's like a it's like a, a romper room. It's like a, it's like going to I don't know a circus or something or ice capades. Every, it's all kids with their parents, and you know, Kiss starts. They don't play. They they start uh, cleaning up a lot of their banter and a lot of the songs they're playing, and it just was losing all. It lost its testosterone for me. It really yeah. did, and then they came out with like uh, unmasked and stuff so i see this gap at this time and there's nobody in metal who's doing anything that i think is cool looking um you know i, I think motley Crue came up but to me that was a bad kiss cover band i had no interest in, i saw them once and then, that's not you know that you know yeah that was kiss light with guys who couldn't you know, this guy couldn't sing and you know but anyway <laughs> apparently apparently they've done very well over the last 40 years Yeah. Uh, so, and everybody's got a couple of good songs, but there was just nothing that grabbed me. So I thought, I looked at these two things. I see these hardcore bands, and the only one that I really loved was I love the Misfits, uh, because they had a look, and they had a great singer, and they had great songs. The other ones did not. A few did. You the know, there are a couple of bands that uh, Negative Approach, had some great songs. There were some other good ones, but for the most part, that was the one that's separate. They had great songs, and a great singer, and a cool look but nobody was doing that in metal and there was no crossover stuff so i saw the plasmatics in detroit in 80 or 81 and they had a great rhythm section that was as good as any metal band i'd ever seen but they had wendy williams singing who was you know she looked cool and she did all the shit on stage she blew the car all that stuff but she couldn't sing so i just had this it just hit me i'm trying to do this as a comic book I'm going to get two guys, and I'm going to do a band, and we're going to dress like this, and I'm going to bring these comic pages to life. Was
0: that too long of an explanation, Bill? <laughs> so, okay, so, yeah, so then you originally, I mean, I'm a big comic book fan, too. You know, I i, I should have showed you the first tattoo I ever got was actually uh, when I was in the Navy, it was Wolverine. Um, and then the last one I, I got, i since I, ha- I haven't been back in a while, was uh, Captain America's shield. Right oh, yeah, I see that. that. Hey, Lail by the away, way, stuff. before
1: we go any further, Bill, let me tell you this: I got to struggle to get out of this thing.
0: Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you, thank you. And then, um, so yeah, you know, con- big, big comic book fan, big Marvel fan, big, you know, I've always been like the vision, i have always liked the visual stuff, and yes. and so I, so I think we're very much alike with the theatrics and what pulls us in. Like you said, Windy O. Williams really couldn't sing, but they put on that, the theatrics. Oh, it was terrific. Pulled, pulled you in yeah. and stuff. So you're, you're creating this comic book character and then you bring it to life basically on stage. And, and yeah. that's your, uh, that became your performance then.
1: Yeah. And it, and I got to tell you, like the other thing I said, like things can define me. We played a couple of shows. I did the first show we played was, uh, uh november of 82. And, and we weren't any good but i tell you what we were we put out a lot of fucking energy and we we're as good as anybody playing that night but we had a look mm-hmm. and and the thing we did was you know the other bands are playing one two three four and it's the same and it's the same song they all sound the same we came out now the other two guys didn't really want to go with the look like I had but you know I got them I wore, I, I won them over over time. It was always tough to get people to get on board with me with this with the look. yeah what we'd do is we'd come out with play our four or five originals and and then at the end we'd close with uh, a cover of either come on and love me or strutter by kiss and we'd blow up a few flash pots that were way too heavily uh, powdered up or whatever. And the kids would go absolutely fucking nuts. They'd all come up because these were a lot of kids coming from Detroit. They loved rock and roll. That this is the you know, this is the, the state of Grand Funk and Iggy and the Stooges and the MC Five and Alice Cooper and Susie Quattro. They were, you know, they want to hear, they just know cool music. So we would all of a sudden we got this reputation that, in fact, there's an old maximum rock and roll uh was it Max? I think it was maximum. It was either that or forced exposure. Was an interview with uh, with uh, Glenn Danzig, and he says, "How's this talk coming?" Because one of the things they asked me is, "Oh, we're going to play this show in Toledo with this band, Manimals. They play a bunch of originals, then they they play a Kiss cover and blow shit up. It's going to be cool." And that's what we did. We weren't very good in terms of playing, but again, we played with a lot of attitude, uh, and and we did. We were different, and we just always got a reaction
0: let's talk about like you know uh the early days making that you know name for yourself and who who were some of the uh the people that you connected with or uh other bands I mean obviously you know the misfits being one but like locally here in Cleveland I don't really connect very well with other bands to be real honest Bill
1: because I don't connect to, I, you know I'm I'm going to be real frank with with everything I tell you because that's just how I am Here's, a, here's an old flyer from those old days. This is Necro's Fate Unknown Manimals from December 18th, 1982. I got to turn it that way to see that.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: you know, we played with Government Issue, who are a decently, decent sized band. I think they were from uh, Washington, D.C., cool guys. Uh, got along with these guys. This is the most famous show of that era. Misfits Necros Manimals January 9th 1983 It's funny I went to see Kiss on the Creatures of the Night we we went up to my buddy John my drummer and I we went up to uh uh I think it was Dearborn Michigan the Henry Ford Center and we saw the Misfits that night and I met Jerry Only the first time we talked it was oh we're going to play this weekend because they were up there on a Friday night and that was the, the day they did the very famous why uh, be something you're not videotaping that afternoon I was supposed to go up for that, but I was late. Couldn't get up there. I went up for the show that night. Then that Saturday night, my drummer John and I went to see Kiss on the Creatures of the Night Tour at uh, Toledo Sports Arena. And nobody really knew if Ace Frehley was gone or not at that time. And this Vinnie Vincent guy comes out. So it was very strange. And they went and played Chicago. Then on a Sunday night, they came back. We played together in Toledo. So that was a cool weekend. And and I think my uh, my favorite uh, team, of the New York Jets, uh, beat up on the uh, uh, Oakland Raiders in the uh, second round of the AFC playoffs
0: that weekend. <laughs> nice. And then, like, how did that relationship start then with you and uh and Jerry in the Misfits? That's why, just because my drummer
1: John knew everybody. He had he had built uh, he had an old again like this this whole thing with punk rock where you could just do whatever you you did your own shows in buildings wherever you could find one you know everybody that i I didn't know anybody in bands but when i started to play in bands all the guys that were in like uh rock bands or or heavy metal bands they all wanted to do this it was a very different message with them they were all going to be like well uh i'm going to do a demo and then I'm going to ship my demo, and we're going to get signed, and then we're going to tour like Van Halen. No, you're not, because 90% of them sucked eggs, and they were terrible. But that was the, the pipe dream with most of them. We're going to be rock stars, or they were going to be local rock stars, big guys in a little pond, and mm. they were going to you know, be the, the biggest band in, I don't know what, Zanesville, Ohio. I don't know. Pick a spot. <laughs> Gary, Indiana. I don't know. Somewhere. So, and they were just going to play for their girlfriends and chicks. It's just, you know, silly. And that's okay. Look. I, and they are going to play cover bands and that kind of stuff. Bill. Some guys are built for show. I'm built to go. I don't fuck around. If I do something, I'm going to do it and to the best of my ability. I don't waste time to the best of my ability. We all waste some time. But I took this very... Seriously, but there's a fine line when you have an image. I didn't want to be Gwar. Okay? God bless him. But I remember the first time I saw them, I've never seen them in concert, but the first time I saw them, I was with uh, my drummer, Dark. We were up at the uh, Motor City Comic Convention probably 20 years ago up in uh, Novi Center in Michigan. And I see a guy rollerblading around the place in, like, a diaper and stuff. It's its one of the Gwar guys. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Gwar, Gwar. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Nothing wrong. Again, good for them. They've made a long career, but I didn't want to ever be seen as a you know a, like a comedy thing or silliness. And when you when you have a look, there's a fine line between not taking yourself too seriously, but still being serious about what you're doing.
0: Yeah, and then um, like as as you guys started getting comfortable playing out, um, I had. Uh, Watched one of your interviews uh, recently. You, you gave uh, props to uh, Chris Andrews and Chris's yes, Records uh, for, for kind of helping you along in a way. Uh, How did that relationship come together?
1: I think probably I came uh, – well, what happened was the guys I was playing with in Toledo, all of a sudden we start to – we play five, six, seven shows but I realized very quickly it wasn't ever going to become the crossover band that I was hoping to be where I merged metal and pop and hardcore. That was my objective because I wanted to blend both audiences. They were great guys, but I knew they did not have the metal uh, capabilities that I was looking for. Meanwhile, two guys, two buddies of mine from high school, they had formed a band here. And I think they played once or twice. Now, you know, they they played for twenty people and family and friends and that kind of thing. And they, uh, I reconnected with them, and um, I uh, they uh, they had lost a, a, a singer and a and a bass player. So they asked me to come do what they were doing to fill in to take both of those spots. It wasn't my taste. They were. I said I'll give it a try. I gave it a try. I didn't. The songs were the songs weren't good. It was not my. It wasn't my taste. So. Um, and the two guitar players were always, I, you know, I drive into practice with them and they'd start with this bullshit with, uh, your volume's too high, your volume's too high, your tunings, or your tuning, oh, just all this fucking read that, f- just fucking around that i don't have any time for. And, um, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I asked the two of them, I said, look, I've tried your thing. It's not going to work. Why don't you try what I'm doing? And at first they were like, nah, we don't want to do that. We don't want to dress off. That doesn't, nah, that, that's... We don't want anybody to laugh at us. I said, well, hey, nobody's gonna, if somebody laughs at me, I don't give a fuck. You know?
0: <laughs>
1: Come up and laugh at me. You want to laugh at me 50 feet in the back of the room and heckle me? Go ahead. Have a good time. Yeah. Um, but after we tried doing their thing, I think it clicked. And I said, you guys are playing for 20 people. I'm playing for 200. It seemed like a big deal when I'm 20 years old. And I had been on a record where we had been on a, a hardcore sampler out of Mystic Records out of San Francisco called uh, We Got Part, uh, We Have Power, Party or Go Home. They did a fanzine and we got included on it. We were never an A-level uh, punk band, Bill, like, uh, like a Dead Kennedys or, or a Black Flag or a Misfits or a Circle Jerks or any of those ones. We were like a level B, level C. This was bands like Red Cross. And uh, I forget who else was on Dr. No, a whole shitload of bands. It was 40 bands, 40 songs, 40 minutes. So we had a one-minute time slot. But I said, Ooh. "We've been on. A, I've been on a record, guys, and I play for a lot of people. Why don't you come do what I do? They agreed. We tried it. I, I went and met Chris. I went up to Chris's Warped Record store, uh, probably 84. And uh, we were talking, and he was very interested because I had gone to see these different bands up in Detroit, the Cramps, again, the Plasmatics, Uh, The Misfits had never played Cleveland. They played Akron once. I remember Glenn telling me we'll never play Ohio again because the show was so bad. There was nobody there. Um, And so we connected. And and Chris was a great guy, really knowledgeable guy, Mm -hmm. really, really intelligent. And he was an entrepreneur. He was really trying to make something happen in that area. He was different than other people.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, I really liked him. So we clicked. And uh, I told him what we were doing. And uh, he said, well, and he was booking things at the pop shop, which was underneath the old, and, and the Agora as well. But the pop shop was the place underneath the old original Agora that burned down in 84. And um, he would have very specific Friday night was your punk, hardcore, whatever night. Uh, Saturday was your metal night. Um, and if it was goth or something like that, that was over at uh, the fantasy. You know, so it was yeah. very, each place had their own, like, personality what they would play. And he knew I was adamant about mixing both crowds, and he thought that was very interesting. So uh, we started playing in June of 84. We we opened exactly one show for Black Death. So Black Death, I know you had. I don't know them well. I I don't really know them, but I know we've played with them. And I would say always thank you, because our first show in Cleveland, uh, like playing a metal show, was we played uh, with Black Death. So uh, at some point, Chris must have said, hey, I'd like you to give these guys a try, and they agreed. So thank you to those guys. Um, after that, we never we never opened for anybody. We, we played our own shows. And in fact, I see your T-shirt 20 years before that was used as <laughs> August of 84, Manimals at the Pop Shop, August 4th, 1984. I, oh, used, yeah. the, I used the old Lon Chaney uh, Jr werewolf uh wolfman for a number of flyers early on i always like to do flyers because the metal bands weren't doing flyers they would do stuff like there's another one from all i did i'd always do a limited number of posters as well that's from uh evelyn anchors the line changer that's for a year later oh nice but, and then i switched over to using the uh oliver reed uh curse of the werewolf werewolf and that kind of became our whatever i don't want to say mascot but kind of something i use it as an identifier for us but um because the, the everybody's uh, familiar with the lon Chaney uh, junior werewolf face cool image uh great yeah, makeup yeah. by jack pierce but the um the alga cursed the werewolf one from harry was much more obscure at the time but it just took off and again we started playing that summer and uh next thing i you know we we started getting a reaction because the other two guys were very much into merciful fate except judas priest scorpions so they complemented what i the songs i was writing so i could fill out a song and we could make turn it into a five or six minute epic song like blood is the harvest The Rattle of the lost souls and do that which is things i couldn't do with the other guys
0: gotcha so then that's like when you when you got convinced them to to come over and try what you had that's when when the the the, the right recipe was thrown in the mix and you really we're off and cooking for the most part. Yes. I mean, there's always, there's always
1: shit with every band. I got to believe. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, there's yeah. always personnel. It's a shame because I will tell you that for the most, yeah, it, it was, it was pretty good. One guy was a pain in my ass all the time, but you know, you look past things and you try to make things go, uh, for the good of the cause. But, uh, I, I, I booked everything I wrote the shit I wrote the you know the vast majority of it I sang the vast majority of it it was my vision they were good guys uh my drummer dark was a terrific guy he stay and he came back with me again after we took a long break about a 10-year break uh he came back with me uh you know the old guitar player was uh it, it, there's always somebody there's always somebody that doesn't appreciate book uh, the, what you have to go in t- through with making the flyers booking the shows uh trying to do studio time trying to record we did an ep uh called blood is the harvest i recorded in 85 i shopped it around i got rejected by a few places and decided we put it out on our own but you know i wasn't the scene at that time bill i I gotta point this out it was a great metal scene great music scene in cleveland in that era of 80 45 86 87 87 was getting tougher but to play places but everybody who was anything in metal, got picked up by Bill Peters, my dear friend, and Auburn Records, except oh, yeah. us. We didn't. We did everything on our own. I didn't know Bill in those years, uh, but it seemed like uh, you know there was Breaker, there was a Shock Paris, there was the, the, the Purgatory, there was Black Death, there was uh, Destructor, there was uh, Retro, t- you know, tons of bands. They were all good bands. Uh, I didn't get out to see many. But you know, I knew there were a lot of quality bands, and there were a ton of people coming out to shows. So there was a lot of excitement around shows. We were always kind of on the outside. The only person I was friends with at that time was uh, Chris Andrews, was my connection, and I got to be pals with Ian Shipley, who was the bass player in, uh, in breaker.
0: And but then I you got were to more. Me. Yeah, you were more, you know, like DIY. You know. Yeah, because
1: I don't need anybody paying my. You know, we were going to do our own thing. I wouldn't look at all. I, we would have liked to have had somebody to promote for us, no doubt
0: yeah like i i you were showing those flyers and it was bringing back memories because like you know i never had any talent to play or perform but i've always loved music and and so i i used to promote back in the day and, and put together shows i used to live with uh uh frank novinek who's now in hate breed uh who was in ringworm uh, oh, yeah. back in the day and uh you know he kind of he, he, he taught me how to put flyers together where you get the band logos and you, you know, do go up yeah. to Kinko's or whatever, you know? So that was bringing back a lot of memories. And we lived, when we lived together, we lived right down the street from Chris's warped record. So I wow. would always run up and pick Chris's brain too, and, yeah. you know, see what was hot and what was good. And, you know, so it's like, uh, yeah, those guys definitely, you know, played a huge role. So that was bringing back memory. People don't, Kids today, they take everything just think if oh, if everybody says yes on Facebook, they're all going to show up. No, people are be, being just kind. You got to get out there and get the word out, man. You, Not everybody's you, checking like social
1: media, yes. And you know, and it does, it, it, hey, Phil, it takes a special talent to be in promotion. I mean, uh, I who was that, Doc McGee? Is he the guy that's with Kiss now that's been with oh, yeah, the last oh, 25 yeah. years? Uh, you know, look, there's a lot of bands. It takes luck. It takes timing, because most bands, frankly, in my opinion, are just not that special or talented. Some of them have great logos. Some just hit. Some just have the right timing. Uh, you know, it's. I mean, I, you know, I say it's funny. If uh, if if uh, Susie, if MTV had been around when Susie Quattro came out, nobody would give a shit about Joan Jet. Everything the Runaways did, you know, she had done before. Joan Jet's just uh, Susie Quattro 2.0. I mean, Marilyn Manson certainly borrowed a lot from Alice Cooper. Uh, you know, they, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, some in good ways. I mean, there's a respectful way of paying homage to somebody and and being derivative of them. You know, kind of, but, but paying homage to them and, and recognize them as an influence. And then there's others that go completely overboard and they just completely appropriate and they're just thieves. Yeah, um, but i'm getting on a tangent but promoting is is a tough part of it and that's the part of the business i didn't like because i was trying to just yep. do the artistry of it and uh and i always you know i did the other shit because i like to control it and i wanted to do it to the best of my ability but the thing that used to hurt us when we put out blood is the harvest the ep the problem with it was i was you know you had to ship records out to distributors there was uh dutch east and i forget the name of the other one and they would say give us x amount of your records you send them off. Well, then you try to get paid. Mm. <laughs> well, if you don't have another release to hold against them, say, look, pay me on this one, or you don't get, pay me on band A, or else I don't send you the new release from bands B, C, D, and E. Yeah. You have no leverage. Yeah. And that's, that was the thing that hurt so many punk bands, because... That's why they're playing shows and they were selling their little uh, they'd press up their little seven inch or maybe a 12-inch, you know, uh, maxi single or EP. You know, you're selling them out of the out of the friggin' van or the car during shows. It was tough to get that stuff out and get paid. Um, and you know, all of a sudden it's like I'm dealing with business shit and the people weren't and bandmates who weren't appreciating this crap.
0: Oh, so yeah. No, that's to- a lot of stress. I I back in the, those days it got so bad for me, you know, it was just like um and I wasn't even like, like really managing a band I would book certain bands locally and you know I'd I'd run out the venue and I'd put these bills together or whatever and and uh I mean I, yeah it, it you know I ended up uh you know I'm 14 years sober now but during those days you know I was taking the you know taking the edge off and it got out of control just to try and to try and deal. And I don't I can't sit there and blame that. You know, it's like I made my decisions and stuff back then. But, you know, it was uh yeah, it was very stressful. People don't get like what happens the work of putting those together. They just show up, plug in, and think, you know <laughs> it just happened. Everybody's there to see me plug in. You know? Yeah. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. No.
1: no, no. A promotion is a tough job, and that—that's why I do this important.
0: now. I enjoy this much more, just talking about yeah. things with other people, and you know, getting the story in. <laughs> and you mentioned something there. Fourteen years, well done. Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you. Keep hey, it going. I know you work out a lot. You do your jujitsu and you do all your your stuff. Keep going.
0: I'm yeah. I'm trying, man. I uh, you know, I don't do the jujitsu as much as I'd like, but um, actually, you know, our, our fellow friend, Trevor was one of the earliest influences for me to, to check it out. I, I watched his journey and seen how, how much he transformed. And, uh, we, we have a mutual friend that just, uh, posted, hello, uh, Adam Grazzi. Um, yep. He, uh, yeah, he's, he, I met him through jujitsu. He's a real good kid, real good friend of mine.
1: Uh, yes, I know Adam. He's a great young man. Uh I actually I think Adam uh, well Adam was my uh, my uh, son Alexander. My my son uh, wrestled over at BW and uh he um I think his second year there he met uh Adam and uh they were roommates over at BW. Oh, nice. So so no, we know Adam very well. He's a good guy. In fact, I think I wanna say both the guys you mentioned, I think I had a little influence on him. I'm pretty sure I took Adam, he and Alexander and I went down to see uh, Rock on the Range. I think I took him to his first uh, metal show probably 10 or 12 years ago. We went down to see Volbeat and uh, uh, In This Moment and uh, Skillet and who else was there? Lamb of God, Ghost, I think was there, but uh, Volbeat was the one we really went for. And then uh, with Trevor, it's funny... I, I might have had a little influence on that because he was just joining uh, jujitsu at the place where I was uh, training as my career with that or my stint with that was winding down.
0: Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Good. Good people that I've met in the community and, you know, all people that have been positive influences to help me turn my life around and try and stay healthy and stuff. But uh, I wanted to t- ask you, um, you know, and I want to get into uh it's funny, too, you mentioned Rock on the Range, but, you know, also, um, you know, it was just announced this week, It Rock on the Range has transformed, and it's been Sonic Temple the past couple of years. Okay. Just was announced this week, your buddies, the uh, original Misfits lineup, are going to be headlining on uh, the Friday night down there. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah.
1: That's very cool. Yeah. I have, so, not, I have not seen them, Bill, since they've
0: uh, done these reunion shows. But well, might have you know, the opportunity I, now down in Columbus, you know. Well, I haven't seen them on any of these reunion shows because they haven't. I've had, I would have to buy a plane ticket to go, yeah. you know. So now it's like, you know, I, I definitely don't want to miss this one.
1: Yeah. That, well, that's great. I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. And, you know, I, I've kind of got the unique uh, uh, perspective of having seen them when they were in their original form or whatever, or their, you know, original run. Yeah, Having played with them during their original run and then uh, having played with Sam Hain and then also having been on stage with the Misfits when they did their 96, because I was in talks with uh, Jerry to be the singer at that time.
0: Oh, wow. Nice. But well, didn't then, work uh, out. yeah. So that around that time frame, I think I, I, I recalled you were on an, uh, mentioned it on another interview it's like that's when family stuff kind of started really you know well i
1: i, I always made time to do this because this was my art though but what happened was this 87 88 i'll tell you what there was an i will i will tell you a story that happened so uh let me find it here 86 we um this is uh october 31st of halloween 86, November 1st, we played two shows back-to-back. I I book us at Blondie's, which is a uh, very famous metal club up in Detroit. Uh, I book us up there, and I had a choice between, I think it was a band called Black Widow, and I had a chance, and then they offered me Nuclear Assault as a co-headline. I said, yes, give me Nuclear Assault. That'd be a great fit. It'd be a cool, cool uh, show with us there. And then i uh chris booked us uh with uh megadeth again a co-headline which i know they were not very i came to find out they weren't very happy with uh but you don't give a shit um (laughs) uh in fact there it is let me see if i can get that in there uh you can see that megadeth manamal yes And that was, we were, I think they were butthurt because they came in and they found I was a co-hand. But anyway, but we played before them. But anyway, that night it was, it was, uh, I had done an interview in the scene and uh, they took exception to us. So they came in, they were trying to be wise asses with me. Uh, not them. The the bass player who was a punk, was trying to be a wise ass with me.
0: Is and, that Allison um, back then? Yes. Yes, <laughs> that was
1: nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, there's a funny story about that we'll tell you some other time but um <laughs> uh we had heard they try to be uh well, i got a good
0: relationship with him now he's he's um you know we all we all grow and you know change make changes in life yeah you know? he t- he took exception to an interview i
1: did so i got there that night and he told we had one crew guy by the name of uh, uh what was it ron uh his last name will come to me in a few minutes. Great guy. And he came up to Detroit with us. Now, unfortunately, the, the nuclear assault show, what I didn't know was I booked it the same night. I'm, I'm getting out. I'm getting on a tangent. But I booked it the same night. Unfortunately, we didn't know. We were going head to head with Alice Cooper at, uh, I think it was Joe Lewis Arena. Or it was either Cobar I think it was Joe Lewis at the time on Halloween night. Of course, I never would have booked playing at Blondie's if I had known we were going up against Alice Cooper in Detroit on Halloween. So it was. A, it wasn't the best attended show, but it was the coolest show. And the Nuclear Assault guys were great. Next night we come back here. We, we get back. We get to the club, and I hear, "Oh, there's going to be trouble. Those guys are really mad." I said, "What the? F- what are they going to do? What are they going to do?" <laughs> oh, their their crew is going to their, their crew one is going to beat you guys up. This Is what the club guys telling me. I said, "They're not going to beat us up." this said, "Cracking." let's go have a discussion he goes oh no no we're not going to have any trouble here okay i said you're right we have to be professional we're not going to be trouble here i said but we're not going to take any shit because i'd heard they give people shit, whatever i gotta say it was it was uh uh my bandmates abandoned me that night and uh ron our one crew guy and i uh handled the situation it didn't get out of hand uh the guy you know tried to be a wise guy, and uh, <laughs> then he reconsidered, and um, so nothing happened. But I did see Dave Mustaine; he was observing everything, and uh, Ron Lesko was the guy's name. Ron was a really good guy; he was a big fan. His his brothers used to come see us with us with him, and he came in and helped us that night. And I remember one of them approached Ron and said, "You know, our road, we're going to have our road crew beat you guys up." And Ron, very diplomatically, and he was a good-sized guy, could handle himself, he said, that probably wouldn't be a good decision. He was just very diplomatic, very even. So they made yeah, a good yeah. decision not to push that button. And I remember going over to Dave Mustaine. say, "Hey, Dave, I'm Larry the Wolf. We got any problems here tonight? And he said, no, man, no problems. We shook hands. That was it. Um, but what happened, uh, the wheels were starting to fall off with us, Bill, because
0: I was going to say, uh, your bandmates beat feet and left you hanging, huh? well uh the guitar player didn't want to go there on that night because mm. it was a hostile crowd
1: um it was the first time we had played all ages and i didn't realize i underestimated now we had some uh supporters who uh uh my friend uh, who at the time i didn't know metal greg and his buddy ivan uh there's pictures of us <laughs> with the crowd from behind us and it's funny we're playing at a place called uh Shat, uh no what was it diversions shadows shadows yeah, shadows and uh it was the only one and only time we were played there and the art it's a starker you look at the audience they hate us It's the 90% of those, 80% don't like us when they start out now by the end of the show there are a lot of them on our side but you see throughout the audience seven or eight or ten people in makeup and they definitely look about five years older and bigger than everybody else so yeah I think they without any any solicitation from us we had our supporters there, who I think kept kept things civil. Well, that uh, shows but,
0: the true uh, the true talent of uh, of a band when you come out and you know it's a hostile crowd, but you just you play your show, and then <laughs> by, before the show is over, you know you turn them over. You know it's like with any good pro wrestler. You know you, go, you to gotta go. Do your, you gotta go work. You go
1: do your job, and if they still don't like you, hey, that's all right. But if if you get a few people in there, then you. You do your, you go out there, you do your best, and I always yeah. took the approach of, and you know, and I probably it the interview is funny because the guy who wrote it was a guy by the name of Mark Holland who I think was the editor of the scene at the time, and I remember him saying to me, "You guys have kind of a pro wrestling bravado." I'm going to go with an angle on this. I said, "All right, do what you want to do." So he made <laughs> it, you know, he went with the whole thing, and he, he so it was probably a little more inflammatory of a, of, a, of an interview than it needed to be, but it yeah. was actually it was a cool thing to play with Megadeth. It's a shame because uh. Uh, I remember uh, a buddy of mine, Mike Pay, said he was talking to uh, Dave Mustaine afterward. And again, I had no issue with him; it was fine. And uh, he said that uh, he said something to him. What do you think? And he said, "Off the record, they're fucking great, but for the record, they suck." <laughs> now, I don't know. I don't, I didn't hear that, but that was what I was told by a few people. But nice. um, but what what became very apparent to me was there was some I wasn't pleased with the. Uh, with the chemistry that we had at that time, um, uh, the guitar player was being a pain in my ass all the time. Uh, it just was. It just was not. He was very negative, and I, I don't need that, you know. So, so that's
0: when it was time to take the uh,
1: hiatus. Well, yeah, and then the drummer quit. My uh, my buddy Dave uh, or Dark, he was a very good drummer, but you know, he, had always, he was always a very smart guy, very intelligent guy. Uh, he had uh, always aspired to go to medical school, so he decided to quit. And uh, we played the uh, last show in '88. I think the last two shows we played, uh, an early version of the Spud Monsters, opened those two shows. are great shows. It was a lot of fun. We had the cages, we blew shit up. It was cool. And um, But it was tough to find, you know, the scene had kind of aged out a little bit. And, um, uh, uh dark just decided he wanted to go back and, uh and try to go to med school so he did that he went back and he went to medical school and um and then uh you know we talked about uh we talked to a few people about having them come and play with us in fact uh, one of them that contacted me was uh, matt from destructor contacted me and said hey i heard you need a drummer i'd be interested we met with him the guitar player didn't want him but he didn't want me to go and i offered the old guy to come back he wouldn't come back because they were having not you know just drama shit and uh, it was clear to me the guitar player didn't want to play anymore. He just wanted to, you know, gripe about what could have been or whatever, but he also didn't want me to go on. So
0: yeah. what happened at that time, Yeah, okay. you, you
1: know, you know my, I got my kids at that time, and I just got focused on my career, and uh, I didn't really intentionally leave, Bill. I just I felt like my band left around me. And, uh, you know, I just thought maybe, maybe this is the universe telling me uh, – to put away my childish, my childish things for a few years and see what happens, and so I was out of it for ten years, and uh, and it wasn't until '96 uh, I got contacted by uh, a guy, the, the internet first startup. As you see, my email style is '96, that's my first email I've kept. The <laughs> AOL, AOL one.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, a guy contacted me by the name of Mark Kennedy, who had a a, a site he put together called Misfits Central. And he said, Hey, I heard you had some history where you played shows, you knew them, whatever. And he said, "Uh, Do you know there's Manimal's fan sites out on the internet? I'm still trying to figure out what the hell the internet is. It just blew my mind that there were some fan sites out there that people had put together. They had pictures of our albums and they had some photos, some I'd never even seen. They put up, they were very primitive. And I just had no idea, Bill. I had no idea at all that anybody cared or had remembered us. And then uh, he put me in contact with. uh, jerry again because they were he said you know they're looking at doing a uh they've got the legal rights to perform and um they're reforming and they're looking at singers he said i think they got somebody but you know you're you ought to talk to them because they'd be interested jerry and i talked it it wasn't going to work out but i did do some show uh some songs with them in may of 96 at the odeon when they first came back and uh i was surprised because people afterward came up to me and they knew who i was and i was Mm. shocked i didn't think anybody knew or cared or remembered and, um, so I got the bug to, uh, I started writing songs again and then I bumped into dark and, uh, and he, uh, said he, he would go back. He would, he would give her another try with me. And then uh, there was a fellow by the name of Tim Drail who had, uh, played in some bands with, uh, locally, I forget the names of them. And, uh, I always liked him and he had come to see us our last few shows and uh, yes. I asked him about playing with us and, uh, he jumped right on and it was great. He was great energy. And that's when we uh, started, re- you know, writing and re- we wrote these songs. We got them recorded in earnest. We recorded with Don Depew and Mark Klein from Breaker. And we released the Horrorcore album. And then we we did this whole relaunch of the band with new songs, new look, new staging. And uh, it was pretty cool. That was a much more, that was much more what I envisioned for the band, that lineup.
0: Nice. And, and Horrorcore, you know, uh, coining that uh, was definitely like, you know, putting your mark on this is, this is manimals.
1: Well, thank you. I, what I didn't realize the time was uh, a few years later, I, I didn't realize that became a genre of, uh, of rap. There's oh, a, yeah? there's a, there's a, a whole genre of rap that's around like horror stuff. That's, uh, it's called horrorcore. but it came out after, you know, I coined it. Earlier. Oh,
0: okay. Well, I figured it'd be more like horrorcore, like, uh, metal. And, well, and that's then, what ours was, but
1: apparently yeah. there's some others who interpret it a different way, not like <laughs> the way I interpret it. Yeah, created
0: it. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, Tim Drail being a part of the band. And then what? Didn't he go on to work with uh, Monster? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he was working with,
1: uh, and and it became. So we were doing, uh, we relaunched, and um, we relaunched in '99. And at that time, I have to say. You know, Chris Andrews had moved down to I think he I think he'd already moved down to Wilmington. Yeah. Uh, and Chris I mean, Chris and I are still in touch. He's a great guy. He's always, he'll, he'll be a friend for life always. Uh, but this time around, Bill Peters and I connected, and Bill in this in this third phase of the band became a tremendous supporter. It was a great help to us. And uh, you know we often say it's too bad we didn't work together in the eighties, uh, but he was a big supporter of this at the time we came back in 99 with this cleveland metal show at the odeon um we had a good night that night and um then we played like with clutch at the odeon we started doing horror conventions in the east coast i thought that was a good way to hit multiple states and crowds without having to try to tour and um we uh we actually uh you know the free times used to be around at that time oh yeah seeing the free times and they used to do their awards And I remember we got invited to play and we got nominated for that for best metal act in 2000, you know, this is, we, we do horror come out in 99. So it was good timing. It was very good timing. And to my, to my astonishment, we won that, that year, you know, you had some tough bands. you had mushroom head in there at that category at that time. And you know, everybody knows how successful they are and how big they were. So we had some momentum. Unfortunately, uh, we played for a few years, and unfortunately, one of the members uh, who used to play football in college and did some other stuff, uh, he uh, started to have dark started to have some very uh, serious back problems and neck problems, mm-hmm. and he also and had for a drummer.
0: Body. That's that's
1: it, you know. Well, and before all that occurred, when we came out, uh, you know, we tried to keep everything very private. He was diagnosed with leukemia when we came back in '98 and played through that so you know you talk about adversity there's a little bit of adversity uh and then uh another member now these, these are young guys these are guys in their 30s and 40s the other guy has open heart surgery so i mean and you know unfortunately that's life stuff happens like that yeah so we were starting to miss opportunities that we couldn't play um even though we had momentum with horrorcore and with this new stage and everything, and we were doing some cool shows and we were playing Detroit. We, again, we played some East Coast shows and we probably played the Odeon three or four times. And unfortunately I was, I, I was at a, in a position where I either had to make a decision. Do I replace one or two people and keep going? Or do I wait for them to heal up after each procedure? Try to do it again. In fact, one of those shows here, you mentioned uh, Ringworm before, right? Yeah. There's a show from 99 at the, we had Boulder, who went on to become, you know, Jamie from Midnight. Oh, uh, uh, yeah.
0: I don't know if your friend was in the band at that point, Ringworm, but that was a Oh, cool yeah, show. I believe I he was, yeah, because Euclid Tavern. I think, uh, I know there was one show they headlined at Euclid Tavern when we were living together, and I got to introduce them. And, uh, I, I did that. This was during like taking it back to pro wrestling. This was back during the attitude era. So I did like the, the new age outlaws, like, uh, style introduction of ringworm, but I changed the words around a little uh, bit, you know, it was, you it know, was a good time. Uh, that's it's funny you
1: say that because, uh, I, yeah, this was 99. Uh, it's and Don actually Don Foose came out and did a couple of Cro-Max songs with us that night when we played that show. Um, Don's a great guy, great guy and great talent. Um, it's funny because I remember uh, Tony Erba. I remember seeing him playing a band. And uh, he did like a a takeoff on the uh, Ravishing Rick Rude. Uh, <laughs> nice. Something like that. But it was yeah, cool. So well, that's I, a, that was a good idea that you did that that way. And you know, yeah. the attitude, you know what's funny with that era, Bill? I tell people all the time. This is, a, this is another sidebar. It's funny because I remember Steve Austin and that stuff with because he's kind of the, the poster guy of that era. Right. Um, Savage had been an anti-hero 10 years before. I mean, yeah. he just was. He was getting a, as big a pop as Hulk Hogan. You know, because kiddies like Hulk Hogan, people a little bit older said, oh, shit, this guy's an athlete. And he's wild. We're onto Savage. But, you know, it's funny. You probably remember stunning Steve Austin in oh, the yeah. AWA. And then you remember him as the Hollywood blondes with the long hair with blind. And his hair was thinning. Yeah. And, like, a lot of guys are there, like, what the hell do you do when your hair's thinning and you're a blonde guy, a bleach blonde guy in pro wrestling? Well, at that time, the UFC was hitting in 93, and you had a guy by the name of Tank Abbott who the the pro wrestling was always trying to create a heel, right? Yeah. You need villains. for the, You need, like you mentioned, you need villains. You need, like, that was Hogan's thing. Trot out Big John Studd, Paul Orndorff, King Kong Bundy, whoever the hell else. Um, they organically had this guy Tank Abbott who came out with a shaved head and a big goatee, and everybody was talking about that guy. Isn't it funny that a guy by the name of Steve Austin gets a makeover and becomes bald with a goatee, and then they bring a guy named Goldberg into the other league, bald with a goatee, wearing yeah. MMA gloves and wearing that 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 uh, minimalistic black trunk, black boot, black. They take Abbott, and then all of a sudden. Every guy I knew who was struggling with that that uh that mullet that they were hanging on to that's thinning, you know, some guys are blessed with great <laughs> hair, other guys it starts to thin. What the hell do you do with it? All of a sudden, overnight, there's the look. Shave your head, get a goatee. That's half the popularity of that thing. Oh, yeah. Timing, <laughs> timing.
0: And you know, speaking of uh, you know, uh the athletes of pro wrestling and stuff like that. But let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, some animals, you know, you decided, you know, uh, it, it's time to, to, to move on. It, it comes to an end, but what do you been doing? Cause you're still a very athletic person. You're been still in, in great shape. What, what does uh, Larry, Thank the you. wolf, uh, what, what's a Larry, the wolf regimen like now today? Um,
1: well, I'm I'm uh, 62, so I uh, I try to do. I try to do everything I can to slow the aging process, Bill. So, um, I treated everything with banned stuff over the years. All business, so I don't drink. I've never drank. I don't eat meat. Um, I just have different habits, and um, I try to again, slow the aging process as much as I can. And uh, I try to compete as often as I can. So if I go back around the time that that guys were getting, unfortunately, life was happening and they were getting injured or or having surgeries or illnesses, I made a choice instead of replacing anybody. I mean, Bill Peters and I were talking about trying to take this to Japan. You know, Mm -hmm. we did play Wakan in 2012, but. There was like from tw 204, five, six, seven, it became very hard to do shows because one guy in particular was having a lot of surgeries. And then Tim Drill, got, you know, Tim's Tim's my dear pal. He moved with his job, which was a label job, up to Detroit. Then he moved out to work with Coffin Case in LA. Then he got the gig with monster, like you're talking about. So mm-hmm. you know, Tim would fly in to do a show, but you know, that's a hard, that's a hard way to do it. Yeah, Uh, And that's when Sean Vanek started playing with us, the last several shows that we had played. But um, so around this time, I made a decision, I'm not going to replace guys. I'm not going to, it's not going to be a career thing. I was always very realistic. But I did want to keep it going. But I decided loyalty is big with me. I stayed loyal to the guys that would play with me. So somebody had a surgery or whatever, I chose to forego opportunities to stay loyal to them. but at the same time, like my oldest daughter that you met, she had a great gymnastics and track career. So you know, she she was on the last uh, she went to Magnificat. So, in fact, she just got inducted in their athletic Hall of Fame last year. So yeah, congratulations. She a, to her. Oh, thank you. She, yeah, my, my kids, God bless them. They've done some really cool stuff. So right around that time, you know, my kids, I've got a 14 year spread on my, on my kids in their age. I can either go book a show or I can do something like that. You know, so my kids needed me at yeah. that time. We took my daughter. She she competed all over the country with USA Gymnastics. Then my son was a three-sport athlete. He played football, track, and wrestling uh, at Westlake. And then he went on. He wrestled at BW. My youngest one is uh, was always doing multiple sports. And then she uh, uh, she and I would do track meets together. And I gave her a javelin, a little plastic turbo javelin when she's a kid and uh she did her gymnastics and her lacrosse and her volleyball and the other sports but uh we would do uh usa track and field uh and aau events over the summer and she just kept getting better she had a cannon she had a good arm when my son was playing football we'd give my daughter the little one a ball and she could just throw the thing she just had it she just had an arm so we gave her a javelin and you know long story short she's a uh she getting paid to throw javelin down from marshall university um it's so at that time, and then what I did, I didn't want to be one of these dads who sits in the in the uh, stands and, you know, the older they get, the better they were. Yeah. Telling, you know, tall tales and shit of what they did. Yeah, I don't have any t- – I, I didn't do, I had unfinished business when I was younger, Bill. I competed for St. Ed's and I competed for North Olmsted, But I didn't do everything I wanted to do, so I always had unfulfilled athletic ambitions and things I felt I needed to get back to. And, you know, for, in your 30s, I thought, well, time's passed me by. Then I realized in my 40s, uh, a guy that was, that was working with me introduced me to, to grappling. So I started doing uh, grappling competitions. I did, uh, I think I did four or five years of uh, a Naga. Now, you know, there's a lot of competitions now, and there's a grappling school, uh, you know, in every community, it seems. Yeah. They're almost becoming like CVSs and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, every, every every community now has a CVS, uh, a funeral home, a tattoo parlor, a liquor store, and a and a, and a auto parts <laughs> and auto parts and a BJJ. You know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, and yeah, you know that's cool. That's cool for the expansion of the sport. Uh Karate places were kind of like that in the '70s and '80s and '90s. But you know, when I started, it kind of found me. So I started again. I didn't want to be one of these dads who just. You know, talking their nonsense about what they did when they were younger, because the ones who did the most say the least. Yeah, um, yeah. well, they still do. So uh, again, it found me. I started doing uh, competitions. I think when I was uh, 44, and mm. um, and then I also I, I bumped into somebody taking my daughter to one, my youngest daughter to a to a, a USA track and field meet. I took her to one. Uh, I think it was down in Virginia, and I saw some masters throwers and i didn't realize that anything 30 and over there's there's masters a whole uh league with that yeah so i went back and uh i used to throw shot put when i was a kid so i started throwing shot put again so i was doing the grappling and throwing shot at the same time and then i'd go and i'd do some uh kickboxing but mostly boxing i don't like to kick but uh and i i was doing that a lot um and i got the bug to compete so that with competing, I didn't have to rely on anybody. With a band, it's always got to be collaborative. Yeah. Unless you're uniquely talented, like an Elvis Presley, which I sure as hell am not. Nobody is, or Patsy Cline, or someone, or Sarah Brightman, or, 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 or Andrea Bocelli, or something like that. Unless you're uniquely talented with this absolute gift. Bands are a collaboration. You got to put up with egos and bullshit and people and disproportionate. Amounts of work being done and and giving up some control and it's just attitudes and ego and greed and all this other crap So I've got that on one side and then people getting sick on me because we, we got along well in that era the band Or I got my kids and I got competition that I don't have to depend on anybody on. yeah So I, I just I went back and that it was the right time and the right place in my life to go back and do competition so since uh, probably 07 I've done well over, I don't know, fifty-six, fifty-sixty uh, sanctioned competitions, either with grappling for North American Grappling Association. But I haven't done one of those in ten years. Or uh, USA Track and Field. I think I've competed in eleven states now.
0: Gotcha, nice. Well, you 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 mentioned uh, North Olmsted. I didn't realize uh, that you were a North Olmsted uh, uh, alumnus because I'm class of '91. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> uh, I was seventy-nine. <laughs>
1: no, I was 79. one of those. I was one of those. Uh, I'm not a big guy now. I'm. I'm. In fact, I'm. I'm small for in terms of shot put and, and track and field. I'm. I'm almost always uh, at a size disadvantage. But I like beating big guys. Uh, but I'm the same size as I'm fourteen so i i just and my dad was a bigger man he was a big guy so i thought i was going to keep going so i just got to my full size when i was 14 and uh so i was a good sized kid when i was 13. i was a pretty good player so i was one of those kids from north olmstead that uh, you know saint richard's church parish where my ccd oh, yeah. teachers uh my ccd teachers uh had recruited me because they had sons playing football over at saint ignatius and then my priest Father Tom Flynn at the time said, nah, you "No, you got to go away."
0: Tom Flynn.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> my oh, place, yeah,
0: too. He ended he up being good. at St. Clarence.
1: <laughs> well, I had him from the St. Richard's days and the the Emerald Ball and all that stuff. Yeah, he and my parents before my parents got divorced were very very close. So, in fact, uh, I he was a uh,
0: shout out to Tom been, Flynn. I never thought I'd be saying that on this podcast, but yeah, he's passed so on. To Tom Flynn. Yeah, he has. Um, but,
1: uh, but, yeah, he, yeah. So I was, and he said, "Now nah, you got to go to St. Ed's. So, you know, I got recruited over there. I went to St. Ed's one year, and then uh, my parents got divorced, and I ended up back because I lived on, since you know North Olmstead, I lived on Revere Drive in the back of the cul-de-sac next to the uh, – where the creek was in the back parking lot of North Olmstead High School.
0: Okay. Yeah, I grew so, up in Bretton Ridge. Oh, I know. Yeah, I knew a kid, There was a kid over there I used to know. His name was Brooks Cook. Brooks Cook. Brooks Cook was the – Best lifeguard ever at the Bret Ridge pool. Oh, is that yeah. right? Yeah. My dad ran the pool there, and Brooks was all-time favorite lifeguard up there. He was like our uh, Jeff Spicoli back before uh, Jeff Spicoli was cool. <laughs> he and I bonded. You know, he was a
1: big monster fan and a big comic book fan. So it's funny because I, he – and what did I do? I traded him. I got some uh, NFL posters. You know, I grew up – as you know i I don't follow the nfl as as much anymore i don't go for the woke bullshit um yeah in anything i don't go for the woke shit in anything and it's too much of that in music and entertainment but uh that's another story but um you know at that time i was a very big uh, jets fan because i again i I an uncle took me to see the jets i i had the uh, benefit of seeing i saw joe namath play johnny unitas in the colts at chase stadium in october of 1970. so i stayed i stayed a uh, jet fan and I remember I had ordered these. You could get four posters for like five bucks. I have uh, Sports Illustrated, so I got Joe Namath, Don Maynard, Matt Snell, and I was trying to figure out a fourth one. And my uncle Eddie said to me, "Get Bob Lilly. He's a great player. He's 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 good. I wish we had him." So I got Bob Lilly, and I think I traded uh, Brooks a Bob Lilly poster for like a Spider-Man comic or something. But he was a cool kid.
0: Nice yeah. kid. Yeah, real good guy. Wow. It's uh so so much uh so much more to talk about, but I got to get ready and start wrapping up with you. Um, but yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to get together and go down some uh, North Olmstead stories because uh well real quick, Father Tom Flynn. I I my my parents were big at when when we formed St. Clarence Church, they were big on you know putting that together. That was over closer to Bretton Ridge area. Yep, yep. And Father Flynn used to do the uh, the cabarets and perform and sing and stuff and my mom would perform and sing and then she got us some of the ccd kids so i had to get up there and perform and sing and uh we were supposed to do a number with 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 father flynn and uh he uh he he would he would he would hardly show up to practice because he was busy running the parish or whatever and then we're then we're doing like a dress rehearsal and he messed up he's like i apologize i apologize let's do this again and And me being who I was, I was like, well, maybe if you showed up to practice once in a while. And I got the the nice jab to the gut by Father Tom Flynn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to tell you, it's funny. Uh, You probably remember them when he was, because I knew him when he was a little bit younger. uh, It sounds like I got about 10, 11 years on you. Um, He would come in, this is again, St. Richard's. He would come in and uh, he'd walk into CCD and he'd ask you a question. And, you know you just see kids bumming out because they did not want to be called on and and if you said yeah he'd look at you what did you say <laughs> you know he'd get he could say just look at you and you knew yes father but uh <laughs> he'd come over and he'd stand next to me hit me on the shoulder and said how you doing larry sometimes going lawrence but i'd say larry it's, uh, okay i'm doing well father thank you Father." hey what he was just he had an influence. He was a great guy. He really was oh, a yeah. really nice guy, and uh, so he had the influence on me with with school and stuff. But again, uh, what you know, like a lot of families went through some family things. I ended up back in North Olmsted. I got to tell you, that was culture shock for me, Bill, going from the uh, regimented St. Ed's. I, I probably needed to stay there because North Olmsted was a fucking free for all over there. Oh, yeah. It was. I you know there were there was a smoking courtyard. They were. There, People, you know, I'd see kids. That's Dean. probably
0: where my brother was hanging out. I don't know if you knew any Baileys back in the day, but, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I was I was
1: pretty miserable, so I kept to myself. I I, I did my thing, and uh, I I stuck to myself. You probably remember Tom Peepers then, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I remember or, that uh, name. Bruce
1: Peepers. Bruce Peepers.
0: Okay, yeah, I remember that name.
1: Yeah, the Coach Peepers. Or yeah.
0: Coach, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was my senior remember. year that uh, a couple of classmates uh, lit it on fire, and we had to go to the IX center. <laughs> my senior I year.
1: remember when that happened. It was the front; uh, the whole front of the school was destroyed, as I recall.
0: Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah. I remember when that happened. Yes, I do remember when that <laughs> happened. And again, I lived across the street from the back parking lot, so uh, you know we a, saw a lot of shit going on back there. It was a, it was a, it was a. Like I said, it was culture shock going from. Uh, one to the other i do have to say as we're wrapping up there's been a lot of fun bill thank you very much for having me you know i i don't know we we bounced around a lot of stuff i spent more time on on wrestling than we when we probably should have but it was a fun conversation <laughs> i gotta tell everybody i put this out this past year the studies in scarlet two CD anthology i gotta tell you I've had such great support, so I didn't want to miss an opportunity to tell everybody who supported it, whether it's been on Spotify and or on the CD or on Bandcamp.
0: Oh yeah, I've been thank you very Spotify. much for
1: supporting it because, for, and there's two guys who helped me for ten years. Uh, Sean Vanek was after me to get this thing wrapped up. He remastered everything, and Tony Alberts pulled out old tapes, live tapes. They baked the old uh, masters from Blood Is the Harvest. We found some old demos from the 82, 83. Sean was great. He kept after me. And the other fellow was a fellow by the name of Argyle Goolsby who plays in the band Blitzkid. He kept after me, and we did, he did the graphics for me. But I want to tell everybody out there, just when I think you forget about me, I appreciate all the support on our music. And, and if we've given you a little bit of uh, joy or, or, or uh, you know, I write songs from the perspective of always being angry, Bill. So if it somehow is uh, connected with some people out there, uh, I hope it did some good for you, and I hope you, uh, I hope everybody out there that listens gets motivated to go out and do something. Like I said, keep moving, keep improving. You've only got one life, and as the great yep. Steve Prefontaine said, "To do any, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift." Every person has a gift, so they got to get the fuck out and do something, whatever yeah. it happens to be, whatever their talent happens to be.
0: Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Hey, before we uh, get ready to wrap up, I want to ask you a couple of questions that I normally ask people on. And uh, this one I'm going I'm, to – I'm definitely going to want to hear as we were just talking about uh, school and, and the culture shock. But uh, what class do you feel should be mandatory before graduating high school today?
1: Well, they used to call it civics, but I think what they should, should have is – I think it should be mandatory – Uh, There should be a few. One should be uh, personal finance because schools teach kids. uh, They they program them early on to go to college. Look, I got two degrees. I got a master's degree too.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, I was the first uh, male in my family. My dad was a Marine. His, his, His brother, my uncle, was a Marine. My mother's two brothers were both in the Army. I was the first male to finish college, but I was also the first not to go into the service because I was, you know, programmed from an early age. my parents were, my mother was, you got to go to college, you got to go to college. They didn't tell you you could really do both if you wanted to. Yeah. But it was, uh, I I would say that they have to take personal finance and civics, uh, but personal finance, learn how to, instead of just uh, working for somebody to make money, how to make money work for you, you know? Yeah. You know, rather than always getting into the system of you got to go to college, you got to incur a bunch of fucking debt, you got to, you know. But the other shit is that is is uh, critical thinking. They should all learn how to do an argumentative the paper. But you know, my oldest daughter is a school teacher, and uh, I see a lot of what goes on. And uh, again, having kids uh, a wide uh, age span. I am uh, not encouraged at all by what I see going on, and that's because uh, the government took over and created the Department of Education in 1977 under Jimmy Carter, and since that happened, our uh, ranking in the U.S. for our kids with uh, national, with international rankings of our students has declined nearly every year. Oh, yeah. we well, used to be number number one in the world before the government got involved and took it over.
0: The, the dumbing down of America, right? Yes, well, yeah. there's a couple great books uh about Charlotte that. Charlotte right? Iserbert, I believe was her name, right? I'm Charlotte, sorry. Charlotte Iser Iserbert or something like that, I think uh is uh one of the authors that wrote like a book that used to work for I think the Reagan Department of Education. Kind oh, of yeah, came well, out as like a whistleblower. Well, I know it was created by
1: Carter, I believe it was 77, but they should have them read all the books like uh you know, of course, Orwell. Ray Bradbury, William Golding, Lord of the Flies, all those books because I think we're, uh, oh, we're yeah. in a bad place right now and have them read books like, authors like Heather MacDonald, the great Thomas Sowell, who's a national treasure. He's in his 90s. He's still writing. Nobody has him oh, on yeah. anything because nobody wants to try to compete with him intellectually. Uh, Charles Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve in the 80s. And also wrote Coming Apart about 10, 12 years ago. She read a book called The Eternal Treblinka. One of the most important books, Alan Bloom. You didn't know I was going to be prepared for this, did you? <laughs> closing of the American Mind. It's wow. what we you <laughs> at universities. So is that enough? Oh, that's good. And yeah. Have, wow. a kid, have a kid do something important. They all should have something. They all, you know, don't have them go play kickball or whatever for show them something meaningful every kid should have a sport or have, or if their thing isn't sports go do music or go do drama club or go do go do science club too many parents get involved with themselves rather than getting involved with what their kids are going to do oh yeah or yeah. they get over involved you know let the oh, kid yeah. be a kid
0: i may I, you know i mean i made some of those mistakes in the past you know where it's like you know um you want to live vicariously through your kids and, uh, my youngest does jujitsu now with me oh. and I stay out of it. It's her journey. You know, she does it more than me. She, she can triangle the hell out of her dad, you know, and, uh, she's been getting into boxing. Um, but I made the mistake when she got into wrestling. Uh, we went back to, cause I wrestled in North Olmsted high school. It was never that good. My friends that oh. kind of actually dragged me into it, but, uh, because I was more there for comedic relief, but, uh, um, you know, I was one of those dads on the side, you know, when she was, and, and I almost ruined it for her. But thank God when she got into jujitsu, she had some good coaches and they said, you're going to shut the fuck up and you're going to let me coach. And I'm like, all right. And the more I've been on my journey and, and you know, with sobriety and everything like that, you know, I, I realized that uh, the, the more I learn, the less I know and my daughters uh, have taught me how to be a better man every, every day. You know, they're teaching me how to be a better father. So it's a huge, huge blessing.
1: That's an outstanding statement. And what you just said is, is absolutely key. The more, you know, the less you realize, the more you realize how much you don't know.
0: That's true in grappling.
1: I mean, you see any good grappling, once they start to understand what it is, it's like, Holy shit, you become awareness of what they don't know. That's life. That's, but if you had that epiphany, Good for you. Good on you. And it sounds like you're doing a great job with her. And don't yeah. and
0: keep her into boxing. The box, you know, grappling is yeah, great. True. I love grappling. But yeah, she just started nothing... get, kind of getting into boxing. She wants me to order new pink gloves for uh, Christmas. So I'm like, all right, I got gotcha. you. Oh yeah, know? yeah, yeah. That's great. And then, um, who are three people who've inspired you, and you can credit for making you the person you are today? <laughs>
1: Three people. My wife, because she's encouraged my, uh, she supported my interests, and I do some weird shit. <laughs> I, I, do, I, I not to me, but I, I'm I'm wired differently. Yeah, you're probably wired differently. You know, it's it's oh, yeah. you know I I am just different, and she's always been supportive of me. So that has that has allowed me to be who I'm going to be, who I was always meant to be. Uh, my uncle Ed, again, I, I mentioned him earlier. He was like my older brother. Um, took my first Jets game when I was a kid. Introduced me to Elvis Presley when nobody understood, you know, uh, why I liked monster movies and things like that. He'd sit down with me. We'd sit back back east. We'd sit down and uh, eat pretzel rods and eat devil dogs and uh, drink ginger ale and watch uh, Chilla Theater, whatever it happened to be. You know, House of Frankenstein, uh, Curse of the Curse of the Werewolf, you know, Mummy's Tomb, whatever whatever monster movie was on. He would sit and indulge me. We would watch that together. He'd buy me Famous Monsters magazines at the at the candy store. He'd buy me a comic book or a you know a hunch. In fact. I think I've got one here still. Okay, so there's one from, you know, that's the old Aurora Hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, when oh, you're a nice. kid, they get, you know, you don't have latex paint. You get the enamel paint, like four colors at the friggin' uh, at the drugstore. So of course, what do you do with any of the monster Miles? You, you paint it up and you, you slap it together. And you throw blood everywhere, all of the thing. So I just I figured since we're showing off.
0: Showing off toys, it'd be appropriate for me to pull out my oh yeah my Lone Cheney Wolfman uh lost <laughs> sitting oh, o- yeah. over here on the side over here, but Very uh cool. yeah so and then uh okay so that's two one more uh, hmm yeah it's always hard with the third one to narrow it down I'll I'll say this. I have to lump them
1: together, my children, because I don't think uh, Jordan Peterson says this, that uh, young men don't become who they're supposed to be until they get married, and then really until they have children. Uh, it it matures you. It, it focuses you on what's truly important. Now, maybe some people don't need it, but I think most young men need that. They yeah. need things to help them focus. I mean, a lot of things. But I mean, you know, I never met Elvis Presley, but he's been an influence. I miss him every day. I wish I, the God, I'd have, I'd have seen him. Uh, you know, I, you know, I sometimes I had, you know, uh, I, I learned from my father some things that were good. I also learned some ways not to be. Yeah. You know, so it's hard to pick three. Yeah. But, gotcha. But definitely, my wife, my uncle Ed, and
0: my kids. Awesome. And then um, any message you have for our military members that are currently serving overseas? God
1: bless you. Thank you for your service. Stay safe. And I hope you all can come home as soon as possible. Uh, Trump was bringing everybody home. Current guy. I don't know what the hell he's. Well, I know what he's. Eating. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Everybody who's in the, you know, entertainment thing. I'm not. I, I'm just a, I'm just a cat doing his stuff. All right. Uh yeah I can't believe how many people that were think consider themselves rebellious are the biggest oh, yeah. conformists on the fucking planet. They get behind this bullshit that's going on now
0: oh yeah, i've had I've had episodes taken off of uh, YouTube um, you know it just uh, i I'm we we're, we're we're very much on the, on the same page on a lot of things Larry. I think uh, we'll yeah. definitely have to set up a uh, and I know you don't like people much, but hopefully one, you know, one time me and you can get together. We could talk about Brooks Cook and, you know, Father Flynn and, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, you know what we what we would do differently, uh, you know, yeah. today. Well, Bill, that would be great.
1: No, I, I tease. I just, I, I'm more of an introvert with, you know, I, I like to talk and tell stories. But, uh, no, but of course we'll get together. And this has been a lot of fun. I will tell you. I always adhere to what Elvis Presley said. In 1972, we, he played an unprecedented four sold-out shows in three days at Madison Square Garden. There's a famous press conference before that; those uh, four shows where an in, a, a reporter asks him what, what his views are on the Vietnam War. And he looks at her and he says, honey, I just assume keep my opinions on that to myself. I, I'm just an entertainer. And she says well do you think all entertainers should keep there and he says no no they do what they want to do he says i'm just choosing to keep mine myself i always adhere to that bill and i but i'm not a professional entertainer yeah when i was active because you try to be respectful of it's a 50 50 we're led to believe country and but there's so much there's as much propaganda going on right now for one side as there was during, during with Lenny Riefenstahl doing this stuff for the Third Reich 80 years ago, or mm. 75 years ago. I mean, it's, there's so much propaganda on one side, nothing is objective anymore. So no. very few people are allowed to make, so we're talking about what you would teach in school, kids are not thought to, to, to think critically or to question anything. I mean, God yeah. knows they can't do it at college campuses.
0: Hey, you read know, I, Thomas Paine's Common Sense or something.
1: Right. Yeah. I, yeah. Yes. I mean, I, we're fortunate. My daughter is down and my youngest one's down at Marshall. And, you know, fortunately, they're about as non-woke a school as you can get. And they're objective. You get different views. Some of the places, you know, we we're doing our recruiting visits with her. It was out of control. You know, we knew five oh, yeah. seconds, We knew five minutes after we got into the campus when they start talking about safe zones and, and that kind of bullshit. You know, that's that's not what she's there for. You know, you, they're, they're supposed to be there to hear different views get a 360 yeah. view of the world, hear different ideas, challenge things, question things, think critically for themselves, not get programmed into bullshit. But again, I always tried to hear the fact that I, I wanted to be respectful of people from from different views. It's well past that,
0: though. Yeah. This is, yeah. This
1: is a matter of now everybody, fu- you know, them fucking up people's lives. So it, it's just always been curious to me because however people feel about them or, or not, it's always curious to me I see musicians all being such conformists when Trump is the most punk rock motherfucker on the planet. <laughs> I mean he was. He came out and he and he, and he and he and he's calling shit, he's calling bullshit on both sides. That's exactly who they who rebellious people should admire. Somebody oh, yeah. calls out the rats on both sides. When you're hated by both sides, you're probably doing something right. Oh, there's my uh my rody wristband. I train with – I got to give this guy a plug because he's a dear friend. Justin Rohde threw for Team Canada in uh, the Olympics. I think it was 2012, and he has a a throwing academy out in uh, Rootstown, Ohio. So uh, he was nice enough to uh, take me under his wing, and uh, I trained with him. So I had to say hello to my friend Justin Rohde. And if anybody's got any sons or daughters uh, uh, or have any aspirations themselves to uh, be a thrower – He runs a terrific academy out there. You got a world-class guy that's right here in Northeast Ohio.
0: Nice, nice. All right. Well, hey, Larry, man, it's been great talking with you, and this definitely won't be the last time we 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 talk. Um, But uh, before I wrap up, I got one last favor I want to ask you. You uh, mind cutting a promo ID for the show? Just introduce yourself, and you're listening to today's Boondoggle. I'd be happy to. Awesome.
1: You tell me when, and I'll go.
0: Yeah, whenever you're good. Dig it, cats. This is LTW,
1: and I'm here with Bill on the Boondoggle Show. I hope you listen.
0: Awesome. Larry, thank you so much, buddy. It was really good talking with you. I'm going to send you a few things off off offline, but, uh, yeah, let's let's stay in touch, man. It's good to get to know you better.
1: It'd be uh, my pleasure, Bill.
0: Thank you for everything, and uh, I
1: had a great time with you tonight. Awesome. Take care.